me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Luke 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we look at your son Jesus, who he is and, and what he taught and what he did, as we consider why these men hated him so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work to give us clarity in understanding your word, that he would apply it to our hearts, that you would cut us to the heart with your word, and that we would repent, that we would look to Jesus as our salvation, that we would press into him more and more. We pray that you would humble us with your word, that your son would be exalted as we Speak and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why does Jesus get rejected? That's the question, right? Why does Jesus get rejected? Why is he hated? Given the fact that he is loving and kind and that he does miracles and that he had authoritative teaching, why was he hated? Why does he get killed by those whom he showed such kindness to? Because that's what happened, right? He showed kindness to people. He fed those who were hungry. He healed those who were sick. He taught those who were in need of hearing God's word. And they hated him. And they killed him for it. Why? 
Well, why do we reject Jesus now? Why is it that 10% or less of our population now believes in Jesus? And I'm not talking about people who profess to believe in Him. I'm talking about those who are really trusting in Him. As studies have been done, lots of studies have been done, people who answer the core questions that make up what Christianity is in the affirmative saying, I believe those things, represent less than 10% of our population. Why is that? Because see, here's what we have to get at and understand. The reason that men reject Jesus in the first century is the same reason that men reject Jesus today. You see, we're tempted to think that it was, that back in those dark times in the past, prior to the scientific enlightenment, that crowds were still ignorant enough and caught up enough with fairy tales to believe in Jesus. But now we're a much more educated people and we aren't so nearly weak-minded as to need religion. So we have science. And science tells us how things work. So we don't need God to account for the great mysteries of the universe. And we have psychology and philosophy. And those things explain to us why nothing ever quite satisfies us and why we are so broken. So we don't need God to account for the complexities of the human mind and the emotions in ways that we just can't understand. Yet we would be historically inept. I want you to hear that. We would be historically inept if we believed that men in the first century were less likely to reject Jesus than they are now. Listen, it wasn't because science and philosophy and psychology have declared Jesus dead that our culture started denying Him. We denied Him for the same reason that they denied Him in the first century. Men for centuries have rejected Jesus. Why? See, men were no less inclined to reject Jesus in the first century than we are today. In fact, if you remember well, they killed Him in the first century. Those people who believed in fairy tales and didn't have science and psychology and philosophy the way we do, they killed Him in the first century. On the final analysis, they rejected Him in the first century for the same reason we reject Him today. So why? Why did they reject Him? And why do we reject Him? Well, in this section of the Gospel of Luke, Luke has compiled stories of Jesus talking about His rejection by the people. That's what we see in chapter 13 and in through chapter 14, and even into chapter 15, etc., is Luke is compiling stories of Jesus talking about His rejection by the people and His eventual death at their hands. If you look at the end of chapter 13, where we left off back in the spring, in verse 31, you will see Jesus doing just that. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow when the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, 
here's a leader of the day, wants to kill Jesus. Luke is telling you about this story, and Jesus is saying, and I'm going to go and die, but I'm going to do it in Jerusalem. Then he goes on and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't Jerusalem be gathered? And why won't we often be gathered? Why do we reject Jesus and why did they? See, that's the question on the forefront of Luke's mind that Luke is trying to explain to Theophilus. As he writes this Gospel of Theophilus, Luke wants Theophilus to understand why so many reject the Messiah. And so he arranges these stories and some of them come here in Luke 14. Luke provides really three dinner lessons that Jesus gave. So if you think about this, it's like you're looking in on a dinner party and at the dinner party, Jesus is teaching some lessons. And there are three lessons that I want to look at today that Jesus gave at this dinner party. And as we look at them, you're going to start to see why Jesus was rejected. So let's look at the first dinner lesson. Here's the first dinner lesson that that Jesus gave them. We are self-righteous. Ready? We're self-righteous. It's the first dinner lesson. Look at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, this is Jesus, so you know it's customary to go and dine at the house of, of whoever invites you at the time after you speak on a Sabbath. Jesus would go from synagogue to synagogue. He would teach at the synagogue. And as the visiting teacher, he was customarily invited to a meal. So one Sabbath, he goes to a meal, and it's the ruler of the Pharisee's house. It's like the same situation as if we had a guest preacher, and I invited him over after lunch. It's the same kind of thing. So he comes over. Jesus comes over. It says to dine, literally to eat bread. So this is probably a lunch meal. After the Sabbath, they would be having lunch together at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And they were watching him carefully. So you know that you weren't the first people watchers in the world. The Pharisees are watching him carefully. You know what people watching is like, right? There's there's two ways you people watch. There's a godly way to do it and, and an ungodly way to do it. One is that you're appreciating God's creation as people are walking by and you're enjoying what God has created and who he's created. The other way is to sit with your spouse or friends and watch people and critique them. That's the ungodly way. That's the way probably most of us enjoy participating in it. Right? And essentially that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They have gathered and invited Jesus over so they can people watch, so they can critique him. And they're watching him carefully. They're trying to catch him. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, that's an interesting phrase, just so you know. Dropsy is this idea that you have this this disease um, inside your body that's killing you, and it's beginning to manifest itself. So when you have dropsy, you're becoming bloated, and and fluid is starting to ooze out of your body in some way, and it's, it's pretty clear to everybody that you're on death's doorstep. 
So this guy has some kind of a disease in which he's dying from, and he's now oozing all over the place, and somehow he magically appears at the Pharisee's house for lunch standing in front of Jesus. Which makes you think, I wonder if this guy was brought here on purpose, just to see what Jesus might do with him. And here are these Pharisees watching Jesus carefully as this man with dropsy stands in front of them, and they're wondering, what's he going to do that we can criticize? How can we catch him? Now stop and think about the scene. There's a man standing in front of them dying. And they're wondering how they might catch Jesus up in sin. That's what they're thinking about. Their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, is so out of proportion at this point that as the Lord of glory sits among them, they're thinking of a way to critique Him, and as a man who's dying stands in front of Him, they're wondering, how can we entrap Jesus? What's amazing is that these men have tried to entrap Jesus before. They were outraged that he healed a man on the Sabbath. They said, it's work to heal a man on the Sabbath. That is outrageous that on the day of God's rest, on the day in which God shows man mercy, on the day in which the Lord is worshipped, that you would take the time to worship a man, and then they went ahead and plotted to kill Jesus. It's okay to plot to murder somebody on the Sabbath, but not to heal somebody. That's how caught up they are with their self-righteousness. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now they don't want to answer this question. But they remain silent. See, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. That was nowhere banned in the law. It was banned in the practices of the Jews at the time, the religious leaders in their oral tradition, had banned healing on the Sabbath, but nowhere in the law of Moses is it banned. They don't want to answer the question. They remain silent. Then he took him, he grabbed hold, he literally took hold of the man and healed him and sent him away. And then you don't hear about this man anymore because what's happening here is Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? See what Jesus is doing here? You would pull your child out of a well if he fell in on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you? That's work. You would pull your ox out of a well if he fell on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you? That's work as well. And why would you pull your son or your ox out of the well on the Sabbath day if he fell in? Because it benefits you. Your ox makes you money. Your son is your future. That's why you'll pull them out, because it benefits you. But when a man comes in here who needs healing and he brings no benefit to you, you're not interested in him at all. Because you're so caught up with yourselves and it goes on in verse 6 and says and they could not reply to these things they're just quiet they have nothing to say see these religious leaders don't care about the man who's dying standing in front of them 
They're just looking for a way to trip up Jesus. And Jesus is wanting to care for a sick man. Meanwhile, while he's trying to care for a sick man, they're finding a way to exalt themselves by putting him down. Jesus points out that they're hypocrites. See, you'll help a guy with, or you'll help your son or your ox, but you won't help a guy who needs healing. You'll do that on the Sabbath, but the other, you're hypocrites. You're pretenders. You're wearing a mask. And Jesus challenges their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, and they become silent. They have nothing to say. These Pharisees are outraged that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, yet they plotted to kill him on the Sabbath. That's how caught up they are in their self-righteousness. See, here's, here's what it's like. You know that you all suffer, and I suffer, from self-righteousness and hypocrisy, right? Uh, we all suffer from it. It's a constant battle against it. I'm sure that you all know this experience that these Pharisees are feeling here, where you hear the word of the Lord and your mouth is silenced because your self-righteousness has just been stabbed in the heart. I know you have, you've probably all suffered from plank eye, right? You know what plank eye is, don't you? It's where you're constantly obsessed with the speck in someone else's eye, but the plank coming out of your own eye is so big that as you're pointing out his speck, you keep whacking him in the head with the plank in your own eye, right? You know what that's like. We're always noticing the speck in our own eye, excuse me, the speck in someone else's eye and not noticing the log in our own. Just think of the problem that exists with gossip. Gossip is an inherently self-righteous, hypocritical behavior. For as I gossip about the weakness of others, what do I do? I display my own. It, it's, it's like the third minister in a joke that was told by R.C. Sproul. Three ministers are hanging out together after a golf game, and they've just, been, just finished up the game, and one of the ministers says, you know, we need to, we need to confess our sins to one another. I've, I've been struggling, and I need to talk to you guys. I need someone to talk to about this. And the first minister says, let me, let me tell you what I'm struggling with. I, I've, I've been struggling with the sin of, of alcoholism. I just cannot give up the booze. I can't do it. I'm just struggling with it and struggling and struggling, and I need help. And the other minister says, I know what it's like to struggle and fight like that. I've been struggling with the sin of lust. I'm lusting after the women in my own congregation. I'm having a problem with this. I can't seem to win and get victory over this. I need help as well. And the third minister said, let's pray. Let's pray. He said, don't you want to confess anything? He said, no, no, I'm, I'm a compulsive gossip. I've got to get out of here quick. <laughs> We're like the third minister, though, aren't we? These Pharisees are self-righteous hypocrites who seek only their personal interest, who work hard to compare themselves favorably to others, and who would rather use this poor sick man than show mercy to him. I remember when Teresa and I were quite young in our marriage, and we got quite a bit of joy at comparing ourselves favorably to other couples, especially to other parents. We would watch these young parents messing up with their children, and it was amazing how well-behaved our imaginary children were. They were amazing. They were amazing. 
Jason knows. I tell Jason that he and Kristen have the best imaginary children around. <laughs> They're dialed in. I can't wait for the real ones to come. <laughs> but, but we all struggle with it, don't we? And we don't show mercy to people. Let's look at the second dinner lesson because we haven't quite gotten to the answer yet, but we're getting there. See what else we learn. The second dinner lesson is that we are self-exalting or we're prideful, a.k.a. the opposite of humility. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. He's going to give them a parable. When he noticed how, now notice how he's talking to those who were invited and why. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor. In other words, Jesus watched as all these men walked into the room and as they were walking in, they were all choosing the places of honor. Closest to the host, to the head of the Pharisees that's present there. They want to get as close to him around the table as they can. They're choosing the places of honor. Because they deserve it, right? Don't they? I remember when I was challenged with my own, my own pride in this regard, when I was, I had just won an election years ago, back when I was running for office still, and I had just won an election and I'd won it big, and actually Debbie Abel invited me to a, to a, a, a dinner party, a political dinner party. I wish I hadn't gone, no offense to you Debbie, you were great company. Uh, my wife and I had a great time, but we wish we hadn't gone because it was such a pretentious event, it was hard to get past. But I mainly wished I hadn't gone because when I walked into the room, I was so appalled at how far from the speaker's table I had been seated. It's like, do these people not know who I now am? I just won a big election. I didn't share that out loud with anybody, but I felt it in my own heart and I had to struggle with my own thought that I, I'm, I'm more important. I should be forward more in this seating. That's essentially what's happening with these men. They thought they deserved to be these places of honor. So Jesus says to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. See, if, if I had walked forward to the speaker's table and said, you know what, here's a senator, I should be seated somewhere near him, and I sat down and then someone came up, and more important than me, what would have happened is the embarrassment that Jesus talks about here next. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place as you're walked across the room to where you deserve to be seated. It's a pretty embarrassing situation, isn't it? Now, Jesus' point isn't, I want you to live with the fear of man to such a degree that as you walk into a room, you take the lowest place because you realize I deserve to be much higher, but I want everyone else to recognize that about me, so I'll sit here waiting to be honored. I won't sit there to save myself the embarrassment. That isn't the point of the ethic that he's teaching here. What he's getting at is he's telling you what happens in the eternal sense when somehow you think you deserve a place of honor with God, and you don't. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Here's the point. You believe of yourself that I, don't, I deserve the lowest place because it's true. And if somebody else wants to honor you 
They can. Let another's lips praise you and not your own. That doesn't mean you go to another and say, here's the things I would like you to say about me in front of people, because I can't say them about me in front of people, right? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, at the heart of the problem here is the idea that I deserve a place of honor. Because you see, I'm going to get mine. You better stay out of my way because I deserve this. Why are you driving so slow today? I have somewhere to be. We not only think we deserve honor in our culture, we actually teach our children to exalt themselves, don't we? You're special. Maybe to you they're special. But here's the problem. Every child can't be special because then nobody's special, right? Your children aren't special. They're not. They're special to you, that's fine. They're not special to everybody else. That's okay. You're amazing and beautiful and you should love yourself. You deserve. You deserve. You deserve. See, that's where our culture is going, and that's what we're teaching the children. What children really need more is more self-esteem. You know what it means to esteem? It means to worship. Is that what they need? More self-worship? But isn't self-hatred a real problem? Yes, it is. It's a real problem. But please don't think that you resolve self-hatred with self-love. Self-hatred is a constant obsession with self in the negative, and self-love is a constant obsession with self in the positive. They're the same disease manifesting differently, a constant obsession with self. You don't solve one with the other, rather you point them away from themselves and to the Lord and to others. See, there aren't three commands in the Great Commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor, and you shall love yourself. Those aren't, that's not how it goes. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's the point? He's not commanding you to love yourself. He already knows you love yourself. Start loving your neighbor that way. One of our problems as parents is that we think our children are special and we want the whole world to know it. Pastor Alistair Begg actually deftly stated that we have produced a generation of minivans roaming around the suburbs declaring how special the children are. Parents, stop destroying your children by making them the center of the world. This world was not created as a theater for the demonstration of our glory, but as a theater for the demonstration of God's glory. Point your own heart and the heart of your children to that. Let's look at the third lesson of the dinner meeting. We're getting there. Third one is that we are self-seeking. Self-seeking. So we're self-righteous. We're self-seeking, which is the opposite, really, of hospitality, isn't it? Let's look at verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Another is saying, don't, don't go out and invite these people 
your brothers and your friends and your relatives, all the people who can pay you back by inviting you as well. Your rich neighbor, because you know you want to go to his house for dinner, so invite him over, right? Now, Jesus is not giving an absolute command that you're never to invite your family members over. Right? He's not saying never invite your parents over or your brothers and sisters over or your people you like over. He's not saying that. He's giving a contrast here. He's getting at the heart of why you do what you do when you invite people over. But when you get a, give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, when you're showing kindness to people, go out of your way to show kindness to people who can't do anything for you. It just costs you to love them. It costs you to show kindness to them. You don't get anything back in return. Don't go seeking to show kindness only to those who show kindness to you or who are able in some way to benefit you. See, unbelievers do that. It's self-seeking. Show kindness to people that make it hard for you to show kindness to them, knowing that you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, here's what it looks like to show kindness to others for our own sake. You know what it looks like? I only invite people over that are fun and that are easy for us. See, I, I, that's, that's what it looks like. It's when I say, you know what, I don't want to invite that guy over because he's hard for me. It's just going to cost me. The only people I'm really going to show that kind of hospitality to are the kind of people that I like to hang around with that benefit me. See, it's when I use the church, for example, for what it offers me. Because to really press into the body is costly. It's a kind of consumerism. It's the kind of consumerism you see with podcasting. Right? That's, that's really good, becoming rampant. I go to this church because I like the music, and I go to this church because I like the preaching, and I go to this church because I like the children's ministry, and I go to this church because I like this, and I never have anything to give to it. I just have all the things I'd like to take from it. I'm not going to press into that body because it'll cost me. It's thinking of others as needing to greet me and reach out to me. See, I walked by and nobody said hello. Well, did you say hello? No. But they didn't say hello. I know they saw me and they did not stop and say good morning to me. Well, did you see them? Yes, I did. That's why I'm telling you this. Did you say hello to them? No, I didn't. So they're the one who's in the wrong. You don't even know if they saw you. I've had that one given to me before, especially on Sunday mornings before the sermon, my mind is so distracted, I'm thinking about a sermon, and I walk by people and say, you didn't say hello to me. I know you saw me, and I'm thinking, you're short, I didn't see you. You looked me right in the face. <laughs> and some of you all are short, right? So, <laughs> the, the, but you looked me right in the face. Yeah, but you know what, I was distracted, I didn't even see you, I didn't remember seeing you. How come you didn't stop and say hello to me? 
You see, that's what we do to each other, isn't it? We make assumptions because we think it's your job to benefit me, not my job to benefit you. See, what happens if I reach out to people, though, and I get nothing in return? You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Keep doing it. What happens if I keep caring for them and keep caring for them and all I get back is more and more need and I keep helping them, I get nothing in return, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This looks like, it looks like this when I show kindness to my spouse when they deserve it. See, once they give me what I want, now I'll show kindness. I cannot tell you how much marital counseling comes down to two people sitting in a room who refuse to show kindness to one another until the other one goes first. What if you just showed kindness and they never showed it back? You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You love people at great cost to yourself like our Savior loved you. He didn't come and walk on the earth and say, as soon as you all show me enough love and adoration and kindness, then I'll be kind and loving to you. Herein is love. Not that we first loved God, but that He first loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. So, brothers, we also ought to love one another like that in a way that costs us. It shows up in the way I reward my children for performing well for me and discipline them for performing poorly for me. You know this is happening when you say to your child or when you're tempted to say to your child, do you know what this makes me look like? When your child does something out in public that they always do at home and you fly off the handle because they just embarrassed you in front of people. See, what's the problem that you're upset about now? Your child's sin or how you look? And what's the real problem in the situation? Their sin or yours? It shows up in, when, in the fact that I'll only serve in ministry when I'm recognized by others for it. I'll only care for the poor and needy when others can see what I did. I'll only pray, I'll, I pray more fervently in public than I do in private. That's another way it shows up. Jesus talked about that in Matthew. I work hard at my job when my boss is recognizing my contribution through praises and raises and bonuses. When my boss is not, then I slack off. Why should I put an extra effort he doesn't seem to notice anyway. Maybe because you'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. See, I can go on with several more examples, but the point is clear, isn't it? We often use people and use God for the sake of ourselves so that we can get something out of it. How often do you serve people for the sake of your reward at the resurrection of the just. See, how often do you think, I'm gonna spend my time with and love this very needy person who bugs me. They exist, I know they exist. You know they exist. We all have them in our lives, right? You might, I might be that for some of you and you might, some of you might be that for me, right? So how do you say, I'm gonna spend time with and love this needy person who bugs me 
How do you do that except to say, because I'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's how I'll do it. I'm going to show kindness to my spouse who isn't treating me well because I'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I'm going to pursue relationships with people and love people at my church who don't seem to reciprocate because I'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So with these three dinner lessons regarding our man's natural self-righteousness or hypocrisy, our desire for self-exaltation, our constant self-seeking, what do we learn about why people then and why people now are rejecting Jesus? What's the point? Why do we reject Jesus? Because we love ourselves. That's our fundamental problem, and our culture encourages us to love ourselves even more. We reject Jesus because we completely fail to understand the truth about ourselves. See, here's what I believe Jesus is getting at. These men are behaving at this meal in the same manner the whole human race is behaving toward the Lord. We hate the biblical teaching of man. As men, we are the creatures, we are not the creators. We are the subjects, we are not the sovereign, and we hate that. Isn't that the heart of Satan's temptation? What does he come to Adam and Eve and say? See, God is holding back from you. You eat the fruit, you will be like God. We want to turn over our seat in God's creation as creatures, and we want to usurp his throne so that we can sit on the seat of honor that we think we deserve to be in. That's our fundamental problem. Further, we hate the biblical teaching of sin. Not only do we hate the biblical teaching of humanity, we hate the biblical teaching of sin. We hate the doctrine of sin because we cling so tightly to our autonomy. You know what our autonomy means? Autonomos, self-law. We love to self-govern. We assume that we're the sovereign, and for someone else to tell us that what we enjoy doing is sin is an affront to our personal authority. Whole political movements now exist for the purpose of telling everybody that I have personal authority to determine what I should do and no one can ever tell me it's wrong. Who is anyone to tell me? God is. I remember when Pastor John MacArthur was on Larry King. He was a pastor down in Sun Valley and and he was on Larry King Live one night. If you guys remember that show, some of you don't remember anymore because you're too young, you don't even know. But some of you remember when Larry, there was a guy named Larry King who was on television on CNN and back when people used to watch CNN and they, uh, and, I'm not, and Larry King was on there and he did these, he was probably the best interviewer of people. And he would interview lots of different figures and one night he had several people on, one of whom was Pastor John MacArthur down at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. And he, John MacArthur actually appeared on there several times, and he was asked, he asked Pastor MacArthur, is, is, uh, is this particular behavior a sin? Now, one of the guests on the show was participating in that particular behavior. He said, well, is this particular behavior a sin? And Pastor MacArthur said, yes, it is a sin. And then the guest responded, well, what right do you have to judge? And MacArthur responded, I don't have the right to judge. But God does. 
and he made his judgment clear that this is sin in the Bible. You see, God can tell you that your behavior, your thoughts, your attitudes are sin, and he has told you as much in his word. And you won't hear it, and we won't listen to him, because to listen to him means that I have to have my own authority overturned. But you don't have the right to sin. We don't have the right, do you hear that? We do not have the right to sin. We may have the ability to sin, but we have no right to sin, for God is the sovereign, and he has not offered us the right to sin. This is God's world. We are God's creatures. We are to obey him. Our desires, our ideas, and our choices about what we do with our life at the end of the day, are irrelevant if they are not in line with what the sovereign says. See, to take that kind of authority is to directly usurp God's position in the cosmos. But we think we deserve a place of honor, and we don't. See, that's the problem. We're creatures, and we're sinful creatures, and we deserve nothing but judgment. That's why we hate Jesus. Because he puts us in our place and tells us the truth about ourselves that we don't want to hear. And we hate him for it. Finally, we hate the biblical doctrine of salvation. We find the idea of a God-man who poured out his life for our sake to be utter foolishness. Why? Because why do we even need that? We aren't that bad. Sure, we all sin, but it, sin isn't a big deal. God doesn't really mind it that much. My good works outweigh my bad. When we come to texts like Romans 18, 118, where it says, for the wrath of God is revealed. What? What's revealed? The wrath? He has that? I don't believe in God who has wrath. Why would he have wrath for my sin? It's not that bad. For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They stand over it and push it down. We're all guilty of it, aren't we? But see, God is love. So he just glosses over sin, right? No. See, the cross announces to us that God does not gloss over sin. God's righteousness requires that he judge sin. Does the cross announce to us that God loves us? Absolutely. That he loves us enough that he would give his son to save us. But he had to send him to the cross to relate to us. That is not glossing over sin. That is taking sin head on and saying, if I'm going to relate to you in order to relate to you so that I can relate to you because I love you, I must punish my son for your sin. Not his sin, your sin. Because I cannot gloss over your sin because I am righteous and holy. And so your sin must be punished. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3 in verse 21 when it announces the Gospel to us and it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, Jesus came. The Old Testament tells us he's coming, but he's come. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're declared righteous and forgiven by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are bought back by him. We're rescued from slavery. We're redeemed. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. That's a satisfaction of his wrath to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. See, God's righteousness had to be displayed. He goes on to say, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. This is what we have to get a hold of. For God to just go around willy-nilly saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, no big deal, your sin I'll gloss it over because I love you, you're really not that bad, is for God to be unjust. He is the God who in the Old Testament again and again and again declares, I will by no means clear the guilty. So how does he then clear the guilty? He, in order to be just and the justifier, someone must be punished, and Jesus is that one who goes as our representative to the cross and is punished on our behalf. God's wrath is satisfied on him so that we can be justified, so that he can be just as he justifies us. The cross declares that to us. And we hate that. See, many reject Jesus now for the same reason they did in the past. Because we don't want to bow at the feet of the cross. We want to be lifted up and receive the crown of glory that we think we deserve. May we get on our faces and humble ourselves before Jesus. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that as we consider your word, that we would be a people who are repentant. People who recognize our need of your son Jesus. People who recognize our need of your grace given to us in Him. People who believe what Jesus shows us about ourselves and about our need. Trust in You. Pray, Father, for those who do not now believe in You, that You would humble them. That You would bring them to a sense of their spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. They would see their need for You and believe. Jesus would open their eyes. He'd remove the blindness that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and so be saved. And pray for those of us who are believers who are trusting in your son Jesus that you would press us ever more into him that we would recognize ever more our need for Jesus and his righteousness. We would recognize evermore that we have nothing of our own to bring. Only to your cross we cling. We need your Son. We need Him desperately. 
every day. We don't stop needing Him once we've received Him at first. We must return to Him again and again, knowing He is our hope, our righteousness, our justification, and that He is the same today and tomorrow and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.